Hi, I'm Tanner, and this is episode one of the Outskirts podcast with Tanner and friends. History teaches us that the foundational layers of our world's ancestral civilizations were built upon the ways and places of worship. Ancient monuments and temples built over the course of many generations were dedicated such resources that it's hardly fathomable today. Many of these sites and structures remain. They stand as a testament to mankind's devotion to belief in realms beyond, above, or below. In the common era, as the Western world was swept up in the current of Christendom, the trend seemed to remain, notably alongside a markedly compounding acceleration in our powers of observation. It wasn't a scientist, but the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, who in the late 19th century famously declared the Christian churches of his day tombs and sepulchres of a dead god. Yet today, at least if you're listening from North America, you probably live in a place where on any given Sunday, if you so desire, you have your pick from dozens of local active churches to attend. And the people inside? Well, some of them have amazing stories. Our first storyteller, and we're so thankful to have him, is Mike. Take a deep breath and take three steps back because we are opening the churchyard gate in an episode we've titled On the Outskirts of Religion. I was born into a family that was not Christian, and my dad was the first person in his family to become a Christian. Uh, My dad was uh, a rhythm and blues guitarist who put together a band, and so every weekend was filled with he and mother visiting clubs, uh, mostly uh, African-American clubs, uh, because that's where rhythm and blues was the most popular. They would take my older sister and brother uh, quite often with them on their weekend jaunts, but when I came along, things kind of changed. My little sister and I were to come a a little later in their lives. He and mother married while he was in the Coast Guard and then moved to their hometown of Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where dad worked as a uh, detective on the Baton Rouge police force. 
to make ends meet, besides working as a police officer, he also tended bar at night. He had those two jobs until he got a, a better job. As my mother's uncle uh, worked at Standard Oil, and Dad started working there. And when he did, um, we moved to a house on Dayton Street close to the plant. The house that we moved in was, was not really big enough for his family, so he closed in the back porch and put my brother and I in bunk beds on that back porch. Uh, it was at that time that I had what I now know was uh, spiritual encounters at the age of about five. This didn't happen once or twice, but it happened <clears throat> many, many times uh, for several years in that, in that house, in that very room. I would wake up in the middle of the night, Tanner, and and sit straight up in my bed and grab for this little creature that was jumping up and down on my stomach. And uh, I had no idea what it was. I remember talking to my parents about it and and they kind of explained it away with, well, you, you must have eaten something that upset your stomach. Many years later as an adult, I saw the, the trailer for the movie Gremlins that Steven Spielberg produced. And that little creature that he built that movie around was the exact same thing that, I, that would wake me up in the middle of the night, every night for several years. And I would grab trying to catch it and wake up holding thin air. Uh, I realized then that Steven Spielberg or someone that he interviewed or knew must have experienced the same thing, which I now know was demonic spirits that were visiting me as a child. It didn't have a, a strongly negative impact on my life, but it did on my brother who developed a, a fear that was strangely powerful. He was not only afraid of the dark, but he was constantly seeing things, and it made it difficult for me to go to sleep. He would say, Michael, did you look, look, did you see that? Our bunk beds were next to this window, and I never did see the things that he claimed to have seen. My brother, that's a year and a half older than me, had terrible eyesight. He had really thick glasses. He was fitted with thick glasses at the age of about five or six, and uh, he was cross his eyes were crossed one of my uncles my dad was the oldest of of uh, nine children used to laugh at my older brother and and say that boy is so cross-eyed he can lay on his back and look down in a well by now dad's working as a superintendent at this plant and uh he meets a young fella out there uh, he invited my dad to a tent revival. The first year that my dad went to that, that tent revival, uh, every night he would write down the scriptures that the, that the preacher would use in a little book that he carried in his pocket. And he would go home every night after those services and dad would sit down at the kitchen table, be late at night, all of us would be in bed and dad would get a six pack of beer out of the fridge, sit down with the Bible 
and go over those scriptures. The, at the end of the week, he determined that the preacher was telling the truth. And because of what he had seen happen, healings take place. My dad decided that this Jesus was for real. From that moment on, every Sunday, he would take my older sister and my brother to church with him. My mother would not go. Uh, she was very skeptic of everything that he had told her, and she would not let him take me and my little sister with him. A year later, that evangelist comes back. That, that evangelist name, I'll never forget, was named Gail Jackson. So when they came back the following year, somehow, because I guess because of the change that she had seen in my dad, my mother agreed to go, and all four of us children went. At the end of the service, the evangelist gave an altar call inviting anybody that was sick to come and, and get in line, and he would pray for them. My dad wanted to take my brother, because of his vision problems, to be prayed for, and my mother said, no, you're not taking any of my kids down there. She said, if anybody's going to take him, I will, and she did. She went and got in this long line. I'll never forget it. It impacted my life so greatly that, that first night because for the first time in my life, I saw it was a huge crowd and about at least half of them were black folks and half of them were white. And it didn't seem to matter. They were worshiping. And uh, I look back on that as, as something so significant. But uh, it was a long, long service. And the line of people being prayed for was so long that my little sister and I both fell asleep on the sawdust floor. Uh, I awakened to chairs rattling and I looked up and there was my mother. Her makeup was all running down her face, but she had a big smile on her face and she was almost yelling to my dad, he's healed. And she was holding my brother and she set him down and she had his glasses now. And we all looked at David, and not only were his eyes not crossed, but one of them actually went out a little bit. Uh, there were some other things that happened in, in that house, but those memories are not as vivid as the ones that I've just recounted. My dad, after serving several roles in that church in Baton Rouge, he felt a call to preach. And uh, while he was there working still at the plant, the pastor there encouraged him to start some outstation work. So he did. He started uh, one in Port Allen, which was across the river. And then he started another one out in the country. It was called River Road Church. And, and I'll never forget that one because he started with a tent. And that tent revival was not appreciated by everybody. And we drove up one Sunday afternoon only to see that tent on fire and it burnt to the ground. Some of the, the neighboring people did not want those Pentecostals. After he got credentials, they referred him to the local church that was out of Summerfield, Louisiana. But we didn't live in Summerfield. We lived about nine miles out of Summerfield in the woods. I used to joke that it was so far back in the woods they had to pipe sunshine in, into that place. That's where my dad started in full-time ministry. And then they moved to Sulphur, Louisiana. And it was in Sulphur that I first witnessed the demonic in a public setting.
one of the deacons in the church, his name was Gene, he had a son that was about my age, and his name was David, and we became fast friends, and, and as kids will do, he would spend the night at our house sometimes, I would spend the night at his house sometimes. Well, this particular Saturday night, I spent the night at their house. I'll never forget it. It made such an indelible imprint on me. By, by now, I'm about 12 years of age, and, uh, and I'm in junior high school. It was Saturday night. We'd gone to bed, I guess, about 10 o'clock because we had church Sunday morning. And Gene was the not just the deacon, but he was the song leader at our church and really close friends with my dad. And the middle of the night, all of a sudden, every light in the house came on. I know that because in our bedroom, David and I were in bunk beds, and the bedroom light came on. I thought maybe David had turned it on, so I jumped out of bed and ran over to turn the switch off, and the switch was still off, and David was still asleep. I opened the door and went out into the hall, and I looked in every direction that I saw, lights were on. In just a minute, Gene comes down the hallway, and he sees me looking wide-eyed, I'm sure. And he said, it's okay, Mike. He could tell I was frightened. So he took me into the kitchen, and we sat down. And then he said, I have to explain this to you. And he pulled back the, the uh, windows in the kitchen and said, look out there. And I looked to the back, and in the house next door, there was a shed in the back and there were lights on. And he said, you see that shed back there with the lights on? I said, yes. He said, that's my father-in-law, Mike. And he said, he's a spiritist. I said, really? He said, really, Mike? He said, I've been out to that little shed. And he said, he does this every now and then. But he said, for some reason, he's decided to use his powers to uh, interrupt our sleep tonight. He said, I'm not going over there. He said, in just a minute, he will reverse it, I guess. And he did, because while Gene was explaining to me, all the lights went off. So Gene turned on the kitchen light so he could finish our conversation. And he said to me, he said, I've been out to that shed, Mike, and I've walked in and seen him holding his hands over the table that he's got there that he uses like for a desk. And I've seen him levitate that table. It'd be off the ground. He said he's got tools and dishes out there in shelves, and I've seen him levitate those things. That's something that we have to live with. That's my wife's parents. Later on, I was to realize that, that his mother-in-law came to our church from time to time. I don't remember the, uh, the time frame, but I do remember a short time later hearing my dad tell my mother in conversation every time she comes and he mentioned this lady's name he said every time she comes to church Helen it's almost impossible for me to preach where the spirit of the Lord is he said there's liberty and when she comes there is no liberty and I have a very difficult time preaching I didn't connect those dots Initially, a little while later, maybe it was a matter of months, uh, my dad invited this evangelist to come to our church. His name was Bill Mason. He may have been the skinniest man I'd ever seen. And I learned why, because when he came and he was with us for about a month, back then, uh, not all evangelists used tents. A lot of them came to churches. But for the most part, especially in smaller churches, they stayed in the pastor's home. 
So Bill Mason stayed in our home and I got to observe how he lived his life. Tanner, I don't remember seeing the man eat even a piece of bread the whole time that he was there. He fasted and he prayed. He spent most of the day. Now, I was in school all day. But when I left for school in the morning and when I came back that evening, Bill would not be in the house. I know because my brother and I had to always give the evangelist our bedroom and he would not be in there. Instead, he would be at the church. The most striking thing happened that happened during that revival. There were a couple of things. Uh, first, the first thing that happened, I'll tell you, there was a lady in our church, a really sweet lady. She was a big woman, meaning tall, big bone, but she had this huge goiter on her neck between her chin and her chest. I can still see her face and that goiter on her neck to this day. But during that revival, uh, Bill Mason invited people come to the altar that, that wanted to be healed. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. What's trouble, sister? Diabetes, all right. The Lord healed that other sister. Now heal you. Now, Lord, we're praying you that you'll heal this diabetes today, Lord. Today, today, today. Amen. And Sister Huffpower went down. Now, as was typical in many churches, all of the teenagers, and I was one, by now I'm 13 or 14, we, we all sat on the back pews of the church. And uh, as he started praying for people, he would anoint them with oil and place his hand on their head and pray for them. And uh, he went down the, the line across the front of the church at the altar, praying for people. When he got to Sister Huffpower and he prayed for her, she fell backwards. And she was close enough to the front pew that she hit her head so loud. All of us kids in the back thought it must surely have knocked her out. We ran down to the front to see what had happened to this lady. And she's laying there in the front of the church. She's not bleeding. She's not knocked out. She has her hands raised and she's praising God and speaking in a language that we didn't recognize. And I stood there long enough, Tanner, to watch this, this huge goiter disappear from her neck. All of us did. We looked at each other in disbelief. We went back to our seats and we're talking about it. And for the next week, I, I'll never forget asking my parents and other people in the church, how did that happen? I asked Bill Mason, who was the evangelist. His answer was simply, that's the power of God, Mike. I had witnessed that about six or eight years prior to that at this re tent revival meeting where my brother's eyes were straightened. So I didn't doubt him. What I didn't expect, though, happened on a Sunday morning. The man that I mentioned who's, uh, who was the deacon and the song leader. This is the man whose house you'd spent the night at? That's the same man whose home I spent the night in and, and witnessed the, the power of the evil spirits turning on all the lights. His wife is sitting, standing on, at the front pew and she begins to speak in tongues. Now her mother, who was this little bitty woman that my parents spoke of when she came to church, there was no liberty. She sat on the very back pew on the opposite side where all of us kids sat in the furthest corner to the back of the church. And when she saw what was happening to her daughter, 
she ran faster than I've ever seen anybody run to the front of that church and attacked her own daughter and jumped on her and started trying to choke her to death. She knocked her to the ground, to the floor. And of herself, she's speaking in this weird masculine voice. Six men rushed and tried to take her off of her own daughter that she was trying to choke to death. It took six grown men to wrest her off of her own daughter. The evangelist, Bill Mason, stopped the service while they were holding this little bitty wisp of a woman. And he said, I need to instruct you, church. He said, if you are not right with God and filled with the Holy Spirit, you have two options. You can either hit your knees right now and begin to intercede and pray and ask God to fill you with his Holy Spirit, or you need to go home. Get out of here, because if these demons leave this woman, they're going to find the, the closest available vessel, and they will inhabit that person. I was a preacher's kid, so I didn't have the luxury of leaving, nor did my brother and sisters. So we hit our knees and began to pray through. And I'll never forget it. As we were doing that, Bill Mason then goes over and begins to communicate with the demonic spirits that uh, possess this little woman. And that those evil spirits begin to talk to him. And they begin to talk to my dad through this woman in this masculine voice and tell him that ever since you came, I have been doing my best to run you off and to get rid of you, and I will see you defeated. And that's all I remember of, of the message because I was so frightened because Bill again paused and he said, this demon spirit is talking to Pastor Dallas here, trying to scare him away. And he's been trying to do that in many ways. And I was later to learn that my dad had experienced a lot of other demonic attacks that I knew nothing about. But what I witnessed that Sunday morning let me know that not only are there demon spirits that are at work in our world, but they are at work in our individual lives, and they're very much at work in the church at large. Uh, that so terrified me. I left that church service knowing that I would never be the same again. Uh, and, and I wasn't. This is the Outskirts Podcast with Tanner and Friends. You've been listening to Episode 1, the first in a two-part series titled On the Outskirts of Religion. When we return in Episode 2, Mike's mother Helen not only comes to terms with the reality of the supernatural, but seems to have developed some gifts of her own. And like his father before him, our storyteller finds himself both behind the pulpit and the target of a supernatural enemy. This episode of the Outskirts Podcast 
with Tanner and Friends was brought to you in part by Felix's non-denominational hex removal services. Hello? Hello, Tanner. Are you feeling a little under the weather? (laughs) Before you meet your end, I wanted you to know that it was I who hexed you. Your last moments are sure to be filled with terror. My sisters and I performed a little blood ritual last night to seal your fate. Be sure to scream loud enough for us to savor your agony. (laughs) Dang it. Jeez. Which voice texted you? Dang, she hexed you. Trouble. Vexed you. What are you gonna do? Problems with the curse. Ex-girlfriend drops a hearse. Call Felix's non-denominational hex removal services. Or the Jolo Steam. human experience can be hard, shocking, strange, and full of wonder. What do you make of it? If you'd like to share, please submit a written or audio summary of your experience to outskirts at tannerandfriends.com.